Please be with us as we listen and sit under your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Today is the final sermon in our series of the book of Titus. Uh, so for our last one, I, I thought it would be helpful to give you a, a fly overview of the short letter. Uh, and a few minutes before we dive in, Bob, could you turn down my mic just a little bit? Thanks. Um, okay, so if you haven't turned there yet, open to the book of Titus, uh, which you'll find around page 998. You're looking at the Bibles provided. They're red, like the one I'm using. And as you get there, don't turn to chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to look first at chapter 1, verse 5. And this is going to remind you of the situation Paul's writing about. So here, the Apostle Paul, just to remind you, he was responsible for planting churches throughout the Mediterranean world. He writes this letter to one of his protégés, one of his partners in ministry, a man named Titus. Titus helped Paul plant churches on this island called Crete, still around today, that's in between Turkey and Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And so what we have going on here in Crete in chapter 1 verse 5, it tells us that there are matters that remain out of order on this island. The gospel is landed there. There are Christians. There are even churches. Now we ask, what do we do now? In comes this letter. Now, Paul wants Titus to keep the gospel central in the churches of Crete. And by the gospel, we don't want to assume that everybody knows what the gospel means. We mean the good news that God has saved us. In fact, a good summary of the gospel is chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. There it says that God saved us not because we earned it, but because he's merciful. Say that uh, we believed and changed, not because of our own efforts, but because the Holy Spirit opened our hearts and changed us. The gospel says it's the good news that God justified us or declared us righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because God credits Jesus' perfect righteousness to us and places the punishment for our unrighteousness this amounts to a new status. This, this amounts to a new future. This all amounts to very good news. That's why we call it gospel, which just means good news. Titus is to keep this gospel central. So from the beginning of the letter, Paul emphasizes that gospel churches are godly churches. Those who believe the gospel live the gospel. This is what it means for a church to be sound. It's a word Paul uses several times. That word uh, sound could also be translated just healthy. Healthy churches are gospel-centered churches. Gospel-centered churches are godly churches. We see that throughout Titus. So let's just take a brief tour. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul tells Titus to minister the gospel with a goal to bring the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Titus can achieve this goal through pastors who teach and model the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, the next paragraph. These deal with an obstacle to living out the gospel they believe. There is another so-called gospel that has crept into the churches of Crete. This false teaching adds man-made external rules on top of the already finished work of Christ. 
This false gospel does not make people godly. It keeps people from being godly. The true gospel, on the other hand, go to the next paragraph, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The true gospel makes people fit for every good work. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul writes to each group in the church that they are to display the teaching that they believe and how they live. Next paragraph after that, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, Paul explains how the gospel of grace trains us to live godly. That's because through the gospel, God has redefined our past and reshaped our future. So we continue to give ourselves to that and trains our hearts to live godly. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Paul shows how the gospel causes us to live godly in relation to the world around us. We seek to live well in the world out of a humility about who we used to be, out of a gratitude for what God has done for us, and out of a confidence in that God has saved us. Today we come to chapter 3, verses 8 to 15, the close of the letter. And once again, we see that the gospel produces godliness. Paul wants the good news about what God has done in Christ to take deeper root in the heart of the Christians in Crete. And as it takes deeper roots, it will produce greater fruits in things like devotion, unity, and cooperation. So we're going to read Titus 3, 8 to 15. After I read it, I will say this is God's word. If you agree, would you say with me, thanks be to God. I'll read Titus 3, beginning in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, you have nothing more to do with him. That such a person is warned to the sinful. He is self-condemned. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need, not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. All right, so healthy churches are gospel-centered churches. Gospel-centered churches are godly churches. As a gospel takes deeper root in those who believe it, those people will display greater fruit of godliness. Paul focuses on three specific fruits. First, devotion, that is devotion to good works. Second, unity. And third, cooperation. So first up, for our time, devotion. Let's read verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. All right, so this dynamic that we're hammering home, the root of the gospel produces the fruit of godliness. We've seen that already a lot in Titus, in place like chapter 2, verse 11, or chapter 3, verse 3. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 8. This verse begins by looking backwards. The phrase, the saying, or these things, most likely refer back to verses 3 to 7. 
Verses 3 to 7 are like Paul's summary for every Christian's experience. They were once lost, God found them, God saved them, God made them free. So you see what's happening here now in verse 8. Titus insisting on the good news is what produces good works. <coughs> Titus continues to preach the gospel, and that fuels good works in response. So I think here we might miss it, but it's a subtle reminder that the gospel and hearing it is not just important for non-Christians, though it is. It's vital. Christians need to hear the gospel often. Think about who would, who would Titus be preaching to in the week out? He would be preaching to Christians. These are the people he would insist these things on. It reminds us that the gospel tells us what God has saved us from. That's glorious news. God has saved us from our sin and the punishment. But the gospel also tells us what God has saved us for, a people devoted to good works. So this dynamic in verse 8, the gospel roots produce godly fruits, it corrects at least three errors. It corrects at least three errors. The first error is that we don't need God to display good works. It corrects that. So look back at the verse. Who are the people who display the good works here? They are those who already have believed in God. And it's not a vague belief in God, just like believing in his existence. Keep in mind the context. The context is verses 3 to 7. You believe in the Father, Son, and Spirit who graciously saves sinners. This is the God you believe in. Without belief in God, our good works will always be shot through with selfishness. Without belief in God, our motives will always be mixed. Without belief in God, we won't even have a standard for what good is and trying to do good works. We'll end up defining good to fit our own convenience. But verse 8 corrects another error also. This dynamic of gospel roots produces godly fruit. So the first error is that we don't need God to display good works. The second error is that we don't need good works to, to believe in God. If we say that, then that turns faith into mere intellectual assent. The Bible says even the demons believe in God. See, read the Gospels. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They're accurate theologians. But they also hate Jesus, and they hate God. So true faith in God shows up not just in our heads, but in our hearts, but also in our hands. As the reformers would often say, we are justified by faith alone, but that faith never is enough. True faith is always evidenced by good works. Verse 8, this dynamic, gospel roots produces godly fruits. It corrects a third error. It's the error of the false teachers that are prevalent in the Crete. It's the teaching that says God will accept us only when we display enough good works. But here's the thing. I know it's, it might be hard to see in this passage, but verse 8 actually comes after verse 7. God has already declared believers righteous by crediting Christ's life and death to their account. That means it's upon the foundation of grace that we build our good works. Friends, the gospel tells you, you aren't good, but... You are loved and accepted because of Christ. And that empowers you to be good. That means you no longer do good works just to escape punishment. 
You no longer do good works just to uh, show yourself better than other people. No, because you are already loved and accepted, you do good works to show love and worship to the God who made you and saved you. It reminds me of what Martin Luther said. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Gospel roots produce garden fruits. But again, look back at verse 8. The godly fruits are more than just good works. Something more than that. Paul writes, so that those who believe may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul wants more than just actions. He wants a mindset, a heart. He doesn't just want good works. He wants carefulness and devotion for good works. So another way to translate be careful is concentrate. Another way to translate devote is prioritize. He doesn't want them to approach good works as something to be checked off the list. He wants them to approach good works as a new way of life, growing from a new heart. So yeah, on the one hand, we say that God has given us the ability, the desire, and the new nature to do good works. He has saved us, he has made us new. But on the other hand, we also say it takes concentration and prioritization on our part to grow and display good works. In other words, friends, good works don't just happen. We need carefulness and devotion. Paul's already said in chapter 2, verse 11, God's grace must train us. Later he'll say in chapter 3, verse 14, we must learn to devote ourselves to good works. They don't just happen. Take a mindset and a new heart that must be trained and learned. So, why I think of it here is from Titus. Church is like the gymnasium of grace and the schoolhouse of good works. Think about it. Church is the people who gather to proclaim the good news about Jesus, to insist on the same trustworthy gospel that Titus insisted on. Week after week, the gospel we hear keeps our hearts warmed and trained to live for God and love God. But more than just that, church is a schoolhouse of good works. It's the people who gather not just to teach the gospel, but to gather to make disciples of Jesus. We not only insist on the good news, we teach all that Jesus has commanded. So along the lines of Titus 2 verse 1, Paul says we don't just teach sound doctrine, we teach the kinds of lives that are consistent with sound doctrine. Looking after Titus 2, verses 2 to 11, we learn good works and how to do them by the example of other people in the church. Friends, good works don't just happen. They take carefulness and devotion. So we get training and learning for this mindset from the church. So, join the gym of grace where you are trained, where you are reminded of the gospel so that it stays your foundation and stays your root. Enroll in the school of good works, where you learn good works and how to devote yourself to them. See and imitate the example of other people in them. Now before we move on to the next fruit that gospel roots produce, you might be wondering the same thing that I did. What kind of good works should we be careful to devote ourselves to? 
Paul doesn't really get specific. He only says good works are the things that are excellent and profitable for people. Maybe he leaves the definition open because he knows just each person is going to have different opportunities for good works. Again, look back at chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. We'll have different opportunities for good works depending upon our, our stage of life and our place in life. So that means you should take stock of the gifts God's given you and the needs that are in front of you. But if you want to get more specific, the New Testament has no shortage of examples of good works that believers should devote themselves to. James 1.27 says, True religion is to care for widows and orphans, to keep oneself unstained in the world. Paul's own example tells us that evangelism is a good work that believers should devote themselves to. This is that book of Philippians. Remember, he's writing from prison. And he tells the Philippians, I'm locked up here, but I see it as an opportunity to tell my prison guard about Jesus. It's evangelism, a good work he devotes himself to. The New Testament constantly emphasizes giving of our finances to support gospel work and those in need. It, it emphasizes generosity as a good work we should devote ourselves to. In fact, Titus has experience with this himself. Back in 2 Corinthians 89, Titus was Paul's delegate to Corinth to raise aid for Jerusalem. So the gospel produces the good fruit out of devotion to good works, this mindset, this carefulness, and we learn how to do that in the church. Now we'll go on to the second fruit, and, and before we do, since we spent last weekend there, I still have Chicago on my mind. Um, we took an architecture tour along the Chicago River, which is really cool. Uh, we learned the history of the city, we learned different details about buildings throughout the city, including Chicago's most famous building. Uh, you would know it as the Sears Tower. It's now been renamed the Willis Tower. Uh, really well there, but uh, I guess uh, RIP Sears, right? Uh, so at 1,454 feet, the Sears Tower was the tallest building in the world for 24 years. And what's crazy is that even the two antennas on top of the Sears Tower are taller than most of Chicago's skyline. But a question that kept coming up on our tour is how do the skyscrapers in Chicago withstand the winds of the Windy City? Well, for the Sears Tower, if you look closely at it, it's not just a single tower. It's actually nine towers sort of bundled together. So our tour guide explained it like this. If you stuck a stick in the ground and expected it to stand up, uh, it might blow over pretty easily. But if you got nine sticks together, rubber banded them, and then stuck them in the ground, then they would be a lot sturdier. The same kind of works with the Sears Tower. So we're saying how the gospel is the true root that produces the fruit of good works. It gives us a, a grateful motivation, it gives us a new desire and ability to do good works. But the gospel is also the true root for the fruit of unity, togetherness. Bible is clear that we are stronger together, kind of like the Sears Tower. Ephesians 2 says that on the cross, Jesus not only reconciled us to God, but to one another. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Because we are stronger together than we are apart. We display good works together, not just as individuals. 
might remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Back to Ephesians, there's also Ephesians 3, verse 10. Paul writes that through the church, not just through individuals, not just through small groups, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So here's the rub. Titus should insist on the gospel because it produces the fruit of God-glorifying unity. When we look ahead, just a sneak preview of uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it is possible for us to be unfruitful. It's possible for us not to display good works. So what's something that would keep us from displaying good works? We have an answer here. Division. If we aren't united but divided, we will be distracted from devotion to good works. Because instead of concentrating and prioritizing how we can build up others, a divisive spirit concentrates and prioritizes how we can build up ourselves and tear down others. So what should they do about this? But something that would keep them from displaying good works. What should they do? Well, they get two instructions. They are to avoid and to address. Avoid and address. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. What's Paul talking about with all these letters? Let's just walk through them kind of briefly. So he says to avoid foolish controversies. Maybe an observation here is Paul doesn't say to avoid all controversies. At times he knows it's necessary to contend for the clarity of the gospel. Just read the book of Galatians. No, he tells them to avoid foolish Brothers and sisters, believe it or not, not every hill is worth dying on. Believe it or not, you don't have to express your opinion about everything. <laughs> believe it or not, you don't even have to have an opinion about everything. That's what media outlets want from you, so that they can keep you worked up, tuning in, scrolling, and watching their advertisements so that they can make money. There are many important things. But again, to 1 Corinthians 15, you remember the gospel, the thing of first importance, and we avoid foolish controversies. Now, what about genealogies? He says to avoid these. So, uh, I guess Ancestry.com is off the table for issues. Um, I think that's what he means. Knowing some of the situation in Crete and other places in the New Testament can help us. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 14 in Titus, You'll see that the false teachers in Crete were likely Jewish. So for Jews and Christians alike, genealogies are important. Uh, so we see even in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, it opens with Jesus' genealogy, right? It traces genealogy back to King David, to Abraham, to Adam. Galatians 3, Paul says believers in Jesus are the true sons of Abraham. So in the Bible, a line of descent, being in the right line of descent, means that you inherit God's promises. The teachers in Crete, like other teachers of the day, they emphasize the following the law of Moses. So they claim that this is the way, this is the only way to be in the right line of descent and inherit the promises of God. 
uh, what the Bible says, though, is that the, to be, the way to be in the right line of descent is to be united to Jesus by faith. Because Jesus is the true promised seed of Abraham, who blesses all the nations of the earth. So they are to avoid uh, foolish controversies, genealogies. They're also to avoid dissensions. Uh, this word dissension is translated in other places as quarrels or as strife or as discord. Again, Titus and the Cretan Christians can't just hope for the best and hope that arguments don't happen. They have to work to avoid dissension. It's a good word for us that while we should be discerning, we should not be contentious and critical. Again, back to Ephesians. Ephesians 4 tells us to bear patiently with one another with humility and gentleness. Ephesians 4 tells us to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 tells us to forgive as we have forgiven. Avoid unnecessary dissension. And avoid quarrels about the law. This is the last in the list. It's likely another reference to the conflict in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Again, Titus should deal with these guys. He should deal with their teaching. He should also keep in mind 2 Timothy 2.25, which says to correct opponents with gentleness. But as one commentator says, there comes a time when those opponents are beyond the aid of instruction and correction. So, guys, when a quarrel is going nowhere, it's best to avoid the distraction. The gospel produces the fruit of unity, but division will prevent us from bearing that fruit. So what should we do? Paul's first instruction is to avoid. It's not never argue. It's not never question. It's more of avoid arguing about stuff that isn't worth it. Think about our relationships. How much better would your relationships be if you didn't major on others? If you didn't make mountains out of molehills? You're thinking about your marriages, probably most of your arguments are about dirty dumb stuff. So we should do what we can to avoid what would divide us. Paul's second instruction about maintaining unity is address. So if possible, they should avoid division and all that causes it. But Paul is realistic. Paul's been to plenty of churches. He knows people who go to church can be difficult. So he knows a person will likely come along who stirs up division in the church. So what should they do about a person like that? Well, they shouldn't ignore that person. Titus needs to address his instruction about how to address the person in verse 10 sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Both there and here, a person in sin in the church gets warned twice. So even in addressing sin, we remember God's patience and mercy toward sin. Romans 2 says God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. But here's the thing, warnings might get ignored. So if that's the case, the church needs to make it clear to that person that they can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith in Christ. Titus and the Christians and priests need to be willing to disassociate someone who is actively harming the church and refuses to stop. Now, if they do this rightly, the person in question has no one to blame but himself. Verse 11 says he is self-condemned. So we talk about this kind of often here, but this instruction in verses 10 and 11 is just another encouragement to tend well to the front door and the back door of the church. In other words, it's an, it's an encouragement to tend well to church membership and the church discipline. 
to take extra care in who we affirm as a Christian in church membership, and not to ignore times when we need to remove that affirmation in church discipline. These are ways we preserve the unity of the church. Preserving the unity of the church keeps us focused on the mission of the church. Unity keeps us bearing good works, shining as the city on the hill that Jesus meant for us to be. Friends, the good news of God's grace is that we are no longer enemies of God, but friends of God. The good news of God's grace in Christ is that we are also no longer enemies of each other, but friends in the same body. In the cross, God, Jesus has reconciled us to God and to one another. But just like a heart for good works doesn't just happen, neither does unity just happen. Just as we need to train ourselves in the grace that is given to us, we also need to maintain the unity that Christ has won for us. It takes work. It doesn't come naturally. In fact, it is more natural for us to stir up division than to stir up unity. That's why Hebrews 10.24 says that when we get together, we should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Guys, what if you came to church every week with that mindset? That today, I'm going to seek to encourage and stir up somebody to love and good works. That's part of what we do when we get together. You can do this in your conversations here. You can stop gossip and spread encouragement. You can meet complaints with listening, grace, gratitude. You can meet accusations with calm clarification. In conversations, you can turn down the temperature instead of turning up the temperature. You can be part of maintaining the unity that Christ is. So I want you to follow me one more time, uh, west on Interstate 90 to Chicago, home of the deep dish pizza. Now maybe you've heard of some of Chicago's biggest restaurants that serve its signature dish. There's Giordano's, there's Guru Malai's, there's Pizzeria Uno, and others. These restaurants compete with each other, vying for the most customers, claiming to be the best, claiming to be the original. But could you imagine if these restaurants cooperated with each other instead of competing against each other. When one of them is short-staffed, others would send help. When one of them has a really long wait time, they would just send customers to the other restaurant. Instead of claiming to be the best, they would complement each other and even learn from each other. Friends, what if gospel-centered churches cooperated with each other instead of competing That's the spirit in which Paul closes his letter to Titus. Verse 12 indicates that the gospel work in Crete does not revolve around one person. Titus is going to leave, and Artemis or Tychicus is going to take over. Verses 13 to 14 indicate that Crete isn't the only place where gospel work happens. In fact, the people in Crete should care about gospel work that happens beyond their island. They should generously and thoughtfully support Zenos and Apollos, who aren't going to minister on Crete. 
They should take their eyes off themselves so that they can meet the urgent needs of other people. Even verse 15 shows a warmth and fellowship that exists between churches. People who are with Paul greet the people in Crete. That's the good news of God's grace in Christ. This root produces the fruit of cooperation. That's because, as Titus 2.11 says, out of grace, God has saved all kinds of people. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He commissions his disciples to make more disciples of every nation on the earth. So too often, Christians want to build their own kingdom instead of working to build Christ's kingdom. But the gospel creates cooperation, not competition. Speaking of restaurants, I've heard it said that the world is starving. And your church is not the only one that serves the true food of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Paul himself. It's very subtle, but he displays a cooperative mindset in these verses. Because among the guys he lists off, one of them is Apollos. If you know 1 Corinthians 3, people thought Paul and Apollos were rivals and they hated each other. But here he is commending that him to Titus and the Cretans. And Paul corrects the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's workers, you are God's field, God's work. You look at Titus 3, 12 to 15, we learn ways that churches cooperate for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Different ways we can do that with other churches. From these verses, we learn that churches can share and send pastors to each other. We learn that churches can send and support missionaries together. We learn that churches can support one another financially. We learn that churches should maintain warmth and fellowship with Churches should pray for one another. Grace be with you all. In other places, churches are even examples to each other. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Well, if you don't believe all that, believe the words of Jesus in John 17, where Jesus actually prays that Christians would cooperate. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that Christians would cooperate for their cooperation so that the world would hear about the salvation of Christ. Why did these verses Maybe. This is one goal for us. This is a thought we can pray about this week. What if we, West Creek, partnered with a couple other like-minded churches in our area, Northeast Ohio, and we raised up pastors together, got a group of people from all those churches, and planted a, another church in our area where there is not a strong gospel witness? That idea might sound so far-fetched and so radical to us, and it might be because we're really 
used to putting our church first. And we compete instead of cooperate. But I remember Jesus saying to seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of your church. He said, we would love to more people to come here. But you know what we would love more? More people to come to Christ. If you're not a Christian, we pray that much is clear to you today. That the first response we desire for you is to turn from trusting in yourself to trust in Christ. The one who lived the life you did not live, the one who died the death that you deserve. Trust him to save you from your sin. Trust, trust him enough to follow him as Lord of your life. Please follow up on that today. If you have questions about that, remind me afterwards and we can talk with you. So, what is a sound or a healthy church? Well, it's a church that displays the fruits of godliness. Fruits like good works and unity and cooperation. But healthy churches can display these fruits only when they have deep roots in the gospel of grace. So it's no wonder that's how the letter opens and closes. Chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Savior. Chapter 3, verse 15. Grace. God of the gospel, we thank you for the gospel. The good news that not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of your glorious grace, you saved us. You did it. It is done. Jesus has paid it all. We are yours. With those roots, with that foundation, produce of good works, a heart devoted to good works. And that foundation produced the fruit of unity. Help us to maintain the unity that Christ has won for us. Will this foundation of the gospel create a humility in us that we would love Jesus so much that we would partner with other Christians to reach those who don't know you? Lord, Make our roots in the gospel deeper so that our fruit of the gospel can display more in our lives as individuals and as a body here in Westbrook. We pray in Jesus' name.